and welcome back to the Bunker Daily. I'm Naomi Smith. In 1942, and in the midst of World War II, a good liberal and peer, William Beveridge, wrote a report that set out the major state interventions needed to tackle five key social issues of poverty, idleness, squalor, ignorance, and disease. It sold hundreds of thousands of copies during the war, showing that the public had an appetite for a new and improved society. Rationing and other state interventions during the war had arguably made voters more amenable to a welfare state. Winston Churchill's instincts had been fairly pluralistic and coalitionist long before World War II, and at the end of the war, he hoped that the National Unity Government would hold a bit longer. But Labour wanted to call a general election, which they did and won, on a manifesto loaded with social reform. The Tories realised that the tide of popular opinion had turned and in 1947 published their own industrial charter that promoted things like state ownership of industry and was even quite pro-Labour unions. And thus it became orthodoxy from the 1950s through the 60s and into the 70s that the state should have a significant role in society and the economy. From the 1980s onwards, however, that post-war consensus broke down. Margaret Thatcher and her successors as Conservative Party leaders with a little help from Nick Clegg's Liberal Democrats during the 2010 to 2015 coalition, pursued less interventionist and more market-focused policies. And now we find ourselves in 2021 with a Conservative-led government paying billions of private sector salaries and pouring billions more into healthcare responses to the pandemic. So it begs the question as to whether a new post-COVID economic consensus could emerge. After all, the UK is doing a pretty good job at beating the rest of the world on disease at the moment and probably isn't faring too well on poverty, idleness, squalor and ignorance either. So with me to talk us through whether or not we might face a new economic consensus post-COVID, and my God, let's hope that we soon will finally be post-COVID, is a familiar figure on our election night TV screens, John Curtis, who is, of course, also Professor of Politics at Strathclyde University and Senior Research Fellow at the National Centre for Social Research and UK in a Changing Europe. Welcome, John. Uh, It's nice to be with you, Naomi. John, you've recently written an article for the Institute of Public Policy Research about social attitudes towards the welfare state. Do you think that what we may be seeing now in terms of government COVID responses compares to Labour's road to 1945 and the way the experience of massive state intervention on the home front had a huge effect on bringing public opinion around to things like nationalisation and and the welfare state? The short answer to is that so what we know about public attitudes, at least so far, the answer to your question is no. However, public attitudes towards welfare certainly were changing before the uh, coronavirus uh, pandemic. And to that extent, at least the greater intervention in the labour market and greater concern with the welfare of those of working age um, is in tune with the change of public mood that was already in place. But let let me go back a bit. Perhaps for those on the left, there is actually a somewhat different history of this subject from the one that you laid out uh, in your original intervention. If we actually go back, and I'm now talking here very specifically about attitudes towards welfare and the provision of welfare for those of working age, as in particular exemplified through attitudes towards the payment of benefit for those who are unemployed. If we actually go back to that era of Margaret Thatcher and John Major, 
then actually at that point, attitudes towards welfare were relatively liberal. That is that people were inclined to the view that actually the provision of welfare benefits was too low and tended to cause hardship, particularly for those of working age. Um, And the more people expressing that view than were saying, you know, it was too high and was acting as a disincentive. The change of attitude comes with the advent of a Labour government. It is the period between 1996 and 1998 when we begin to see a marked change of attitudes towards the provision of welfare. Again, crucially for those of working age. Retired is another whole subject. And all my, I mean, what we have to remember here is that one of the crucial criticisms that New Labour made of the Mrs. Thatcher's government was that it wasted too much money on welfare, i.e. it spent money on, on keeping people uh, on the unemployment books rather than engaging in welfare to work. And quite a lot of research basically demonstrates that that change of tone by the Labour Party, when they're actually introduced in office, uh, is crucial in moving public attitudes into a tougher uh, position on the question of welfare. That then is basically maintained throughout the office and throughout the Labour period. In contrast, I've already suggested attitudes towards retirement pensions. Uh, making the uh, welfare for the retired much more liberal. That's where we were wanting to spend our money, but not on work-shy folk who were aged less than 65. That set of attitudes continues into the early years of the Conservative Liberal Democrat coalition. But towards the end of that government, from around 2013, 2014 onwards, And through to the eve of the pandemic, we begin to see a change of this mood once more, with people moving, not still not as liberal on the subject as they were under Major and and Thatcher. And we kind of reached the point where perhaps as many people thought um, that unemployment benefit was too low, I thought it was too high. But there was also clearly beginning to be a change of priorities. Uh, that and, uh, the electorate was beginning to be much less concerned about spending yet more on welfare for those of re- uh, t- retirement age and beginning to be more concerned about spending on it uh, for those of working age, including the unemployed. Um, but, you know, attitudes have begun to shift. And almost undoubtedly, at least part of the reason for this is the fact that the Labour Party under Jeremy Corbyn had moved back to a position where indeed it was critical about austerity um, and was certainly implying that welfare provision was inadequate in a way that never really rang true from from the lips of Tony Blair. But then what all I can then tell you about the point thereafter is that one of the things that we have done uh, since that IPPR article that you referred to, we actually went back to voters in July of 2019, so quite early in the lockdown. And we went across a whole range of subjects about uh, to try to see how their attitudes might have changed in the wake of COVID. So, you know, the role of the state, nationalisation, welfare, and also a lot of stuff to do with um, our attitudes towards each other, levels of social trust, all that kind Mm. of stuff. And what you discover, I mean, basically, at least as of last summer, absolutely no consistent evidence of any fundamental shift 
in the attitudes of the general public. So there was all this elite discourse going on about you know how we uh, the pandemic creates the possibility for doing this and doing that. But at that stage, at least so far as the public was concerned, no obvious sign of shift, but that the shift in attitudes towards welfare, at least, that were already in evidence prior to the pandemic, they certainly were not reversed by the experience of the pandemic. Now, of course, that was relatively early days, and it may be that 12 months on uh, with the full experience of the pandemic, um, we might get a shift of attitudes. Let me ask you about that, because you, you've, you've very clearly made the point that some of these social attitude shifts were in play well before uh, COVID, as were some changes to Conservative Party policy and, and their sort of strategy, which appeared to me, at least, to be uh, pivoting away from serving that traditional Tory Shire voter to leave voters who would tend to be more socially conservative uh, than the average voter, but economically much less supportive of laissez-faire economics than the traditional Tory voter. And for all his faults, it seemed that, that Dominic Cummings kind of got that. How well have the Conservatives, in your view, adapted to these sort of shifts in public opinion? And is it being led by their focus on Red Bull voters or, or something else? Okay, um, a very good question. I mean, uh, let me put one proposition to you straight away. That prior to COVID, the arrival of Boris Johnson as Prime Minister marked the end of the Thatcherite neoliberal project in Britain, i.e., I think, wholly independent of the pandemic. Uh, Johnson is essentially a, a meddler, an intervener. He wants to get things done. He wants to use the power of the state uh, to improve society in a way uh, that he thinks would be better. And uh, to that extent, at least, We've already seen a, a major change. Now, you're right, it so happens to be true that the electorate that Boris Johnson has successfully courted is a Leave electorate. And the crucial thing about Brexit is that it's not a left-right issue. There are as many people who are on the left economically, by which I mean people who think the state should be involved in trying to reduce inequality, as there were on, right, on the right, i.e. people who... Uh, feel that the role of the state is to create the incentives for entrepreneurs to to achieve economic growth. Um, uh, you know, we we know from the attitudes of UKIP voters, the attitudes of Brexit voters and Leave voters. You know, left wing views are as common amongst them as right wing views because this was not a left right issue. Indeed. It was an issue of social conservatives versus social liberals. So it's certainly therefore true that the character of the conservative vote, in particular is no longer primarily defined by whether or not people are on the left or on the right, but is much more clearly defined by whether or not they're social conservatives versus social liberals. And in the case of the Labour Party, these two forces are both equally important, but that's something the Labour Party seems to find it much more difficult to accommodate. accommodate. Let me ask you about that. If, if Labour and the Conservatives do converge on issues like welfare and even on things like immigration and Brexit, what policy space remains for Labour to occupy ahead of the next election uh, that, that can garner significant numbers of voters for them to be able to get the keys to number 10. I mean... Well, well I, look, if they converge on both those things, then there isn't much space, right, is the short answer to your question. Then we come back to the politics of competence. 
and of course, you know, we've seen the Labour Party pursue the politics of competence perfectly uh, successfully during the course of the last nine months, i.e. Uh, by constantly criticising the government's handling of the pandemic. It has at least been able to get the party back up to even Stevens in the opinion polls. Uh, and that would probably be a level that would be sufficient to deny Boris Johnson a, uh, another administration if that were to happen in an election. So remember, politics is always potentially about competence. And as you know, in that Butzka-like period of the 1950s that you referred to in the introduction, that's arguably um, uh, what a lot of politics um, was about. So there will still be the space about competence, mm. Uh, even even if that is closed down. But I think the point is Boris Johnson will certainly, I mean, for as long as Boris Johnson is Prime Minister, he will not want to close down the space on Brexit. Labour Party will want to close down the space on Brexit. But Boris Johnson will, of course, be one to say, I've delivered Brexit, it's been wonderful, uh, you should carry on voting for me. But I think, you know, to come back to slightly other question, I mean, I think, you know, there is a fascinating potential tension mm. within the Conservative Party. I mean, for the time being under Boris... They have followed him into the land of Brexit. But now that the land of Brexit has been delivered, what do they want to do now that they're inside the promised land? And clearly, I mean, I mean one suspects that many a Conservative MP, including, by the way, the Chancellor, do not necessarily buy into the relatively interventionist uh, perspective of the Prime Minister. Exactly. So, so let me let me let, let me ask you about this, John. Then, will the government be able to pursue its levelling up agenda, which is very much Boris Johnson's agenda? That that's something that he's staked his colours to, without accepting a new economic consensus where the state plays a bigger role. Uh, and you're, what I'm hearing from you is that you think that that he's got adversaries around the cabinet on that, including the Chancellor. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I think the answer to is that I mean, you know, if, if he's going to deliver what he's uh, aiming to deliver, it would seem to be crucial that the state should be rather more involved. Of course, what Boris Johnson wanted to do was not spend an awful lot of money uh, keeping the economy afloat, as opposed to spending lots more money on infrastructure. And I think, you know, if you were wanting to try and tease out evidence of the way in which the Conservative Party is not necessarily going to be as keen on current spending as perhaps a future Labour administration would be. Well, you know, one obvious area where this government has been extraordinarily resistant has been the cries, the repeated uh, claims by uh, many of those of its scientific advisers, as well as the opposition, that we should be actually spending money on putting people who've caught COVID into hotels, uh, enabling them to isolate, paying their wages, etc., etc., to that, the government's being resistant. I see also the whole row about uh, about school uh, free school meals. So you can see, although Boris, as it were, has an interventionist agenda, which is, well, basically we get the state to provide the infrastructure, and then I think the argument is, and then industry will do the rest, and that that's not necessarily an agenda that's keen on spending lots of money on welfare or on current spending, but and so, so, so I think that's the way in which he's interventionist. But, you know, we can still see signs, even with his prime minister, where what, from a Labour perspective at least, kind of looked like signs of a traditional conservative reluctance to spend money on those who are less well off is still in evidence. Does the political culture of Scotland differ markedly from the rest of the UK? I mean, they already have things like free social care for the elderly. Why was that politically possible and palatable there and and not in England and Wales? 
Um, uh, the short answer as to why we got uh, free um, uh, 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 free personal care and free university tuition is because um, the Labour Party could not win a majority under a PR system uh, and they were reliant on the Liberal Democrats uh, in order to be able to remain in office. Uh, and those were uh, two of the principal price, prices that uh, uh, the Liberal Democrats um, extracted. So it wasn't so much that there was a much uh, stronger level of support amongst the average voter for a big welfare state. The, the, the short answer to your question is that, um, well, on the specific example of free personal care, uh, attitudes in Scotland tended to be a little bit more in favour than those in England. And indeed, as a result, I know, I know going back 20 years or so, perhaps there was just a majority in Scotland in favour and just a majority in England against, but actually it was around a relatively small difference. Free university tuition has become increasingly less popular on both sides of the border. But, you know, the SNP is just utterly, utterly uh, committed to it. And more broad, more broadly, uh, what you, need, you have to understand is that Scotland is slightly more social democratic than England. If you kind of ask questions about, you know, again, what should be the role of the state and should it be trying to reduce inequality? Most years, when you ask questions about this on both sides of the border, Scotland ends up being a little bit more left-wing than is England, but not dramatically so. What Scotland has different is a very different party system, and that party system has uh, delivered a different set of outcomes. And of course, in particular, what is true is that it just has, uh, I mean, you know, there are plenty of centre-right voters in Scotland they just don't necessarily vote for the Conservative Party, even now that the Conservative Party has has revived to a considerable degree. And that, of course, goes back uh, well, historically, to the stance that the Conservative Party took on devolution for a long time, and now the difficulty the Conservative Party has north of the border is that it's uh, it's tied its mast to um, Brexit, which might work in England and Wales, but is a niche market north of the border. Indeed. Um, let's just ever so quickly get back to this issue of competence that you raised, and, and that, that being the battleground uh, that, that Labour and the Conservatives may fight the next election on if they're actually reaching some kind of consensus with each other on other things. What has been the effect of COVID on trust in government? Um, and has there been any impact on public opinion on the various procurement scandals and the so-called chumocracy of, of all of that? So the survey work that we did back in uh, July of 2020, trust in government as of last summer was higher than it was at the back end of 2019, but that's because Brexit Mm. had been delivered, all right? So you have to remember the backdrop so far as measures of trust in government are concerned was not a particularly propitious one because plenty of people on both the Remain and the Leave side of the argument, I mean, they they might have wanted the Brexit stalemate to be resolved in a different way, but both of them were getting pretty fed up with the fact that the stalemate was not being resolved. And levels of trust in government, um, survey work we did back end of 2019, was as low as it could be. So Brexit has had an impact on trust in government. It's helped to, it helped with Leave voters. But, of course, the story's moved on. I mean, basically what is true is that trust in the UK government in the handling of coronavirus in particular, well, it, it, it's taken a couple of nosedives. So like every, like lots of governments, the immediate arrival of the pandemic saw um, 
people rally to the flag and say, God, we hope to God Boris manages mm. this one. You know, exactly. Saying, we hope Nicola will, will deal with this one. Even probably Nashus and Northern Ireland were hoping that for God's sake, we hope that Eileen would at least manage to deal with this one competently. We all wanted governments to succeed. And you saw um, uh, this being reflected in the polls. Uh, two things uh, undid Boris. It's not the chumocracy. Dominic Cummings. I mean, that was politically disastrous for the Conservatives. I mean, a very rare occasion when a government actually uses all its persuasive powers and opportunities to try to persuade the public that something and was to protect okay a friend. and mm. completely and utterly fail. Well, yeah, it's a friend, but B, they completely and utterly failed to change public opinion on something. Now, persuasive power was zero. And in the wake of that, a level of satisfaction was already falling because Boris Johnson's um, television uh, uh, broadcast that announced that you know, lockdown in England was easing, but then everybody was saying, oh, I'm going to go back to work tomorrow. Yeah. And that did a lot of damage. Dominic Cummings did a lot of damage. And then uh, the return of the virus in the autumn just added to that. Um, and it's so, I mean, the vaccine may help them to recover. But um, so certainly, but, but of course, this has not been true everywhere. And it came to come back to Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, is, she's not riding as high on this as she was. But basically, people in Scotland think she's handled it well. Boris Johnson has handled it badly. Actually, people in England think that Nicola Sturgeon handled well. has yes. handled it well. Uh, Mark Drakeford was doing well, although the Welsh government is now not doing as well uh, since the uh, the lockdown that they had in the autumn failed to failed to do the trick. Um, so there's no guarantee these things will stay. So the so the other answer to you is that well you know the levels of trust in different governments within the UK has varied during the course of the pandemic, and I think that's an awful lot to do with difference of style communication strategy, political strategy, um, et cetera, et cetera, which has had a resulted in a very, very marked different set of evaluations. And finally, John, and this is maybe a slightly unfair question, but in your opinion, is there anyone in either house or in any of our national parliaments uh, who you think could be said to be a modern day beverage? <laughs> um, I think... So I'll answer it this way. I think certainly um, there is a concern at the moment about a bit of a vision deficit. Boris has a rhetorical vision, and central to that vision was the delivery of Brexit. But now that Brexit's been delivered, and in particular the government spent you know 12 months trying to minimise the extent to which the UK would be subject to future regulation, uh, the question that now arises, well, what do you want to do with that? And so far, at least, with the interesting exception of the de- what might be a furious debate about gene editing, um, uh, relatively little has come forth. But there clearly is now a challenge to this government about what its challenge, uh, about what its vision is for post Brexit Britain, you know, beyond the level, beyond that, the, the rhetoric about levelling up. But, but equally on the Labour side, but equally on the Labour side, you know, I think a lot of people give Keir Starmer mark, excellent marks for being uh, the courtroom lawyer. What, however, we are now looking to see, and I understand why it's not been done so far, is can he play the role 
of visionary, can he excite people about what Labour might be about? Um, but at the moment, shall we say, there are question marks about both of our two principal leaders, about their ability not only to present rhetoric, but to present rhetoric with substance in a way that persuades the public that they've got something that they wish to buy into. And I'm afraid that's all there is time for today. John, thank you so much for joining me. Not at all. It's been a delight to talk to you, Naomi. And to those at home, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy these Bunker episodes, please do make sure to leave us a nice review over on Apple Podcasts because that helps other people to find the show. We'll see you again soon. The Bunker Daily was presented by Naomi Smith. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archibald and Yelena Sofranievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. <laughs>